fun show today. We're not going to have a serious show today. I talked yesterday about maybe doing a current events type show or something like that. That'll probably happen tomorrow because um, I am skipping expert counsel tomorrow due to uh, how much inventory I have of expert counsel segments and this being a short week. Today we're going to talk about cooking and I'm going to give you 16 cooking hacks, recipes, techniques, call it whatever you want to, that will elevate your cooking to the point where I sort of God if you take to heart what I'm teaching you today and you go through these things and learn how to do them and start incorporating them as what you're already doing, your friends and family will think you went to culinary school. They will think you are a culinary genius. Now, this ain't everything, but this is some stuff that I'm betting most of it you haven't heard before. If you've heard some of it, you've probably never heard it all. And I'm betting there's no way you ever heard all of this put together in a single podcast. I'm going to go a little bit fast through each technique because there are 16 of them. If I did, you know, three minutes a piece, that's 48 minutes right there. And so I am not going to get down into the nitty gritty of exactly how to do everything. I'm going to make you aware of it, tell you what you can do with it and why you'd want to know it and what can be done with it. And uh, I think four of the ones are, you know, things that you might really want a recipe for. So I've actually put together a document that's in a PDF. It will be in the audio notes. If you're listening to this on a video, right down in the videos, there's a link in like the second paragraph, and you can click on that and go over to the audio side and get all the resources. Everything that I mentioned today will be there. If you click it right now while we're live, well, it's not there yet. We're not done yet. The audio goes up about a half hour after the live stream ends. Anyway, um, before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today, and I did pick them because of a subject is ButcherBox. I love ButcherBox. If you give them a try, you're going to love them as well. I love them so much, they don't ever pay me money. Uh, they pay me with a box of meat. I get a giant box of meat to my front door every uh, every month uh, as my payment. I usually end up spending some money with them because I add cool stuff to it because there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do with add-on deals and things like that. It's just super quality meat. And I love to eat meat, so I love ButcherBox. They've been a sponsor for about five years now, and uh, they've been a really great and loyal sponsor. So when you're thinking about stocking up that freezer, consider using ButcherBox.com. Next up today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Now, Start9 lets you take back your digital sovereignty. You know, you always hear about the cloud, the cloud, the cloud. There's no cloud. There's no such thing. The cloud is a bullshit word that was made up for marketing purposes only. The cloud means you're using somebody else's computer. So if you're using Amazon Web Services, you're using Amazon's computer. If you're using Gmail, you're using Gmail, you're using Google's computers. You see how that works? That's, it's, that's it. That's what the cloud means. It means it's somebody else's stuff, which means they have access to it and they can cut off your access to it. Well, you don't want that. If you start using Start9, you can, can, you can store all your files so you can access them from anywhere in the world, fully encrypted. No one can get to them and no one can cut you off. You can also do things like manage your passwords in a way where you maintain complete control. You can set up end-to-end military-grade encryption for messaging services for you and those you choose to allow into your own server. 
And I mean, this is unbreakable military grade stuff. You can run your own Bitcoin node. You can run your own lightning node. And all of this might sound really technical. It's not. If you can use a smartphone, you can use a start nine embassy server uh, and definitely check them out. And remember, uh, they do a discount. And so does ButcherBox for my members support brigade. So if you're an MSB member, you're going to do business with either of these folks. Use your membership. And guess what? Your membership will be more than covered by just these two sponsors, either one of them. 9% off Start9 Embassy servers, even the lowest end server there, that's going to save you a full year of membership. And uh, if you are getting the ButcherBox discount, it's $10 a box for life. They don't do that for anybody uh, but us. No one but us gets that deal. And uh, so it's, it's definitely worth the cost of membership just to get the discounts if you can do business with either one of them. And again, they have been, you know, taking care of us for a long time, both of those sponsors. All right. All right. Let's dig into this. Um, again, for those that are new, I have one good eye and one bad eye and the good one ain't that great. Uh, when I'm multitasking, I don't have a guest and I'm watching a live chat. If you happen to be in the live chat, if you want me to comment on something, if you have a question, it is very important. As you see the words going across the bottom right now, First couple, three words, put them in all caps. I'm just going to hit star. I'm not going to read them. So please, uh, you don't get thrown out of the room or anything for it. But don't use all caps at the beginning of your, your comment unless it's for me to answer a question or for a talking point for me because it will make my life, my one-eyed life, a little bit easier. All right. So let's dig into this. Let's start off with <clears throat> whenever I do a cooking show, I always have the special children in the room that are like, is this a survival topic? Do you eat? Yes. Do you store food? Yes. So shut up. I mean, that's how I feel about it. But I also feel like if we're going to cook, that we should be able to cook in such a way that we're not just able to eat our food, but we're excited to eat our food. And the better we get at this, the more self-sufficient and independent we become because it saves money. So I think that anything that saves money while maintaining a standard, or increasing a standard is definitely a modern survival topic. Because remember, this ain't the doomsday prepper show. We don't do that shit around here. We talk about preparing with a modicum of realism to our world. So every dime that we don't spend is something we can use to further our self-sufficiency, independence, and liberty. So when I can make a meal at home for a family of four for 30 bucks, and that meal exceeds what we would have gotten if we go out and spend 100 or 150 even, including cocktails and stuff like that. Well, I think we've done something for our self-sufficiency, liberty, and independence. And if you don't think that's a survival topic, you have found the wrong survival podcast. You need to go find the other one where they talk about crazy shit, right? Uh, next is it leads to better health. So I have railed against the current health system, if you can call it that, for well, as long as there's been a survival podcast, over 3,000 episodes and 15 years of it. And I've often said that one of the greatest tragedy, tragedies in the modern world is not the cost of health insurance in of itself, but the fact that they have convinced the average idiot that health insurance, right, is health care. It is not. Car maintenance and car insurance are not the same thing. And health insurance and health care are not the same thing. And healthcare, if we actually focused on that, would start with us and what we put in our body. Nothing has a bigger impact on what you, what your body is like than the food that you ingest every day. So when we cook with fresh ingredients, when we get on a proper diet, whatever that is to you, because any designed diet, any intentional diet is better than the sad diet, 
or the standard American diet, even the stuff that I don't recommend because I'm a keto carnivore guy. If that's not you, I don't care. Cooking for yourself is going to lead to eating higher quality, healthier food if you learn to do the stuff I'm talking about today. If cooking for yourself means buying a, a, a bag of free a freezer shit and throwing it in a pot and adding in some salt and then heating it up, it won't. But if you learn to cook with, you know, starting with real ingredients, no matter what, you'll be better off health-wise. And if that's not a survival topic, again, you're in the wrong place. Mental stimulation. I, I do some of my best thinking when I'm cooking. I never get in a big hurry when I'm cooking. You know, I like the TV shows where they compete against each other and all, but I'm like, I don't want to do that shit. I want to enjoy cooking. And I think mental stimulation is really important about, you know, if you start cooking and get your knife skills right or don't do this while you're using your knife. But if you if you start taking cooking as kind of meditative and take something that you're trying to work out what to do about it and you think about that thing while you're cooking, you'll find yourself coming to solutions. And like think about it for a little bit and then just let it go. And focus only on the cooking and only on the technique and only on what you're doing. And you'll find that that little subliminal programming will kind of set that mental computer to work. Well, I think being able to solve problems is a prepper topic. Uh, and I also would tell you that we always say eat what you store and store what you eat. Well, if you're going to do that, you might as well enjoy what you're eating. And if you learn how to enjoy what you're eating, you might find this whole eat what you store, store what you eat thing a little bit better to follow, a little easier to follow. And lastly, I think it it really hits on critical thinking as well. My biggest issue with people when it comes to cooking is what I and there's various forms of this illness and I call it parsley disease. And when I talk about parsley disease, what I'm referring to and it's just a, a random thing that I pick because there's hundreds of examples of this. Somebody finds a recipe for let's say chicken soup. The recipe includes a handful of chopped fresh parsley stirred into the soup at the end of the cook. Fantastic idea. Fantastic idea. Totally makes sense. You should do that shit. Person looks at all the instructions in the recipe, looks around the house. I ain't got no daggone parsley, and I don't, I don't have time to go to the store. I can't make the soup. Well, there's dozens of options. You could have substituted in some dry herbs. Maybe you have some fresh herbs. Instead of parsley, you could have used something like, I don't know, oregano and thyme instead of parsley. Um, you could have used, if you had carrots and the carrots had the tops, you could chop the carrot tops up and use those in a substitute for parsley. They're in the same family and they taste almost the same. You could take the leaves off the celery that you're going to use, chop those up and reserve them. And use the celery leaves at the end of the cook. It won't be the same, but it'll be good. You could just not use the parsley. But instead, you're focused on what somebody said you're supposed to do. You're reading a cookbook or you're watching a TikTok video. Or whatever. You need to be able to be flexible. And that's why my first hack for you guys is something that is incredibly flexible. But when I see most people do it, they do it only for a specific right? They know how to do this thing, and they don't do it for... Anything except the recipes that call for it. And here's my view. Humans, fellow humans, garlic goes in almost everything. So my first one for you today is how to do roasted garlic, roasted soft garlic, for your cooking. And this is one of the easiest, and I mean the easiest 
things you can do that elevates the quality of what you're producing a huge deal. Very simple. You take a whole head of garlic and you cut just the top off it so that when you look into it, you can see the little cloves exposed. And you want to cut it before you roast it because it's going to be soft. And when you try to cut it after the fact, it will mush. You take it and you put it in a piece of foil. You throw some salt on it and you pour some olive oil on it. If you don't want to use olive oil for whatever reason, whatever fat you want. You can use a little grease, a little tallow. I don't care. Whatever you want. Fold it up. If you're going to make one, you might as well make at least two. And it does keep in a refrigerator for a few days, so maybe make three or four. Yeah? That's that's that that's the mindset that you get here, right? Because it's good for other things. You wrap the foil up, and what do you do now? Well, you throw it in the oven at 350 degrees for 20 minutes. That's the textbook answer. Well, what if you're not using the oven today? What if you're cooking, like I did recently, chicken on the grill? Well, you throw it on the freaking grill under indirect heat. How do you know when it's done? When it's soft? When you can squeeze it, it gives. It's done. That's it. So what if you're going to bake a great big pot roast in a crock pot? Bundle up some garlic, do the same thing I said, and set it on top of the roast and leave it in there. It would probably take an hour and a half to two hours until it gives, until it's soft. Pull it out. Before you do the next thing, let it cool down. I don't care how many calluses you have on your fingers because it's got oil on it. It will stick to your fingers. It will burn the crap out of you. If you need to do it quickly, you can squeeze it. Leave the foil on it, squeeze it. It'll still burn you, so you use something to hold it. Generally, I just let it cool down a bit. And then you take that garlic and you smush it out. And you do whatever you want to do with roasted garlic with the roasted garlic. But here's an example of something I did recently. We did some chicken. I won't talk about what we did with the chicken because that's for later. And I was thinking I want something to put on it. And my wife's not big on, like, the buffalo sauce and stuff like that, which I personally love, but she loves cheese. So I made two heads of the garlic on the grill right next to the chicken, let it cool down, got a frying pan out, threw it on top of the stovetop, squished both of them in there, okay? Added a little bit of oil and started to cook that down. Don't need to cook it much. Just kind of get it going. Then I went ahead in with... And I don't know the ingre- the amount of these ingredients, folks. I do have some recipes for you documented. This I just made on the fly. That's what I'm trying to get across to you that you can do this. But I added in some bone stock, chicken bone stock, and started to reduce it down. I reduced it by about half of the volume. Made it in a frying pan, so it reduces really fast when you have a frying pan. I wasn't trying to make a ton of this. Um, once I reduced that down, I added in some cream, probably about the same amount that I had added of the chicken stock and began to reduce that down. Once it began to reduce maybe a third of reduction, you got to stay with it when you put cream in there, guys. Then I got some really good, high-quality, hard-grated Parmesan and started stirring that in. And how much did I add? I kept slowly stirring it in a little at a time so it doesn't clump. And when it got kind of the taste and consistency I was looking for, I quit. No, No recipe, okay? But this is something you can do this over and over and over again. I put in some cracked black pepper, a little bit more salt, some thyme and rosemary dry herbs, stirred that in, set it to the side, and let that kind of just come together. And then when I brought the chicken in later, I just heated it back up and we spooned that over. That was freaking the bomb. But if you're thinking, oh, I'll make that for chicken, great. But if you're only thinking that, tell me that wouldn't be the bomb on shrimp. Tell me that wouldn't be delicious if you're a rice eater on rice. How about shrimp and rice? Or if you're like me, shrimp and cauliflower rice. I'm not going to cover cauliflower rice today. I don't think I have it there. Um, 
but there's some hacks of that. If I have time, maybe I'll throw that in as a throw that in there as a uh, a bonus for you today. But that's that's number one. Roast the garlic and use it on everything. Next is something called salsa matcha. This is new to me. I did not know about this in the past. I just thought it was chili crisp, which is more of an Asian inspired thing that uses more like fresh fresh peppers. It uses shallots, uh, things like that. But uh, it's 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 wholly different thing. And I do have it's one of the ones that I have a recipe for. So I'm only going to go so much involvement here with, with telling you how to do it. Um, and I'm going to pull up that for those that are on the thing, I'm going to pull up the document right now. This is the document that will be in the audio notes for you to download. It's a PDF and it's made with ancho, guajillo and chili de arbo dry chili peppers. And you don't have to use the chili de arbo because it's, it, those are hot. I mean, those are, they've got some real heat in them and you'll see there's six of each pepper in my recipe is my formulation. And, uh, but the thing is, they're a very small part of the whole because the the ancho and the guajillo are fairly large chilies and the diarbos are little. They kind of look like a Thai chili. If you don't want too much heat in this, you can leave them out. But my opinion is the amount of heat they contribute to the total recipe is, is really low, that they're not a heavy um, heat when they, they're spread out against this whole recipe. And so that's your base is those chilies. But the order this goes in is pretty, really pretty important. The other, and you could, there's a lot of versions of this, right? Um, I use in mine to make one batch, a half a cup of chopicons, a quarter cup of pine nuts, two whole heads of garlic, three tablespoons of sesame seeds, and I like to use a mix, and I have links to all this stuff that will go in the audio notes, two cups of olive oil, I would not use extra virgin for this. I don't think it's worth it. The big giant bottles of plain old olive oil at Costco are what we use for stuff like this. I've had people ask me that are full on carnivore, like, well, why don't you use tallow or something? If you want to use tallow, lard, whatever you can, the issue you're going to have is you're going to have a product that's not liquid at room temperature. And this is more of a condiment than something you cook with. But you can cook with it, too. We'll talk about that. Uh, just a tablespoon of ACV, that's apple cider vinegar. Uh, a teaspoon of salt and a teaspoon of me Mexican oregano. The the procedure here is, is the thing. And so let's talk real quick about what we're going to do and the order we're going to do it in. This is one of these recipes. I think this is really important to get everything ready to go. Everything in its place, like a chef would say, before you start the actual cooking process. So you're going to de-seed and de-stem the chilies and cut them up. I find the easiest way to cut up dry chili peppers into something manageable. You can tear them if you want to. Pair kitchen chairs. Now, you're not going to get them as small as you need them in the end. That's okay. I'll tell you what to do next. You get that ready. Peel all your garlic cloves. Most recipes of about this amount, you haul for like four to six cloves of garlic. I think the garlic is a huge part of this. So I use two whole heads of garlic in it. You can adjust that as you want to. Get all your garlic peeled and get everything else ready to go. Put your two cups of oil into a saucepan. You don't need a giant one. You want some depth in this, so something that's not too big around, you'll get some depth out of two cups of olive oil. I'm sorry, I, I actually wrote that recipe down. I modified this recipe, and I just realized that I screwed that up, so I'm going to have to change that document. It's three cups of olive oil to, to get the yield that I'm looking for, and I'll tell you why I did it in just a second. You're going to put the nuts and the garlic into the oil. And when you do that, then you're going to um, put the oil on a medium heat and you're going to bring it to where it 
just barely fries. And if you're thinking this kind of sounds like Jack's chili oil, garlic stuff from the Asian influence, it's similar, but it's different. It's the same but different, man. And uh, you're going to then do that for about 10 minutes. Again, you want the, the garlic, the nuts, and the sesame seeds all in at that point. When you're about 10 minutes into that cook, you're going to shut the heat off. So the whole time that when you're, once you start that 10 minute timer, you're going to start that 10 minutes when you start to see little bubbles. You want the most gentle fry. It's almost like, uh, um, what is that? A confit. It's almost like your confit. You want to get crispness on the garlic and then a roast on the nuts, but you do not want to actually fry them hard, char them and burn them. Once you kill that, you're going to throw everything else in. You can throw in at that point. Throw your Mexican oregano, throw your salt, your apple cider vinegar, and your chili. I'm sorry, don't throw the ACV in there yet. It's going to, it's going to cool it. It'll help cool it. So let's just wait on the ACV. You throw everything in there except the ACV. Give it a stir. It'll keep frying. It'll probably keep frying for another 10 minutes from residual heat. Let it cool all the way down. Throw in your ACV. Give it a good stir and put it into jars. It'll keep a long-ass time. If you read it in stuff online, it'll say that you need to, you know, put it in the refrigerator or whatever. This stuff was made as a storage thing. It's originally from Guatemala. It's kind of where it has its roots. I'm sure they don't keep it in the refrigerator down there. But if you made a lot of it, maybe you want to break it into smaller bits. Now, let me tell you why. I, I, my last batch, I upped it to three cups of oil. Is because I wanted to make a big batch and I wanted some residual oil because the oil is money to cook with. Like one of the things I make with the oil is I'll put down a couple tablespoons of that and fry cauliflower rice in it. And it is unfreaking believable. Here's your hack for cauliflower rice. If you don't want to make your own, which I don't because it's too much time, too much of a pain in the ass. Costco has organic cauliflower rice in a freezer bag for servings. In that bag, it says the microwave. If you microwave it, you'll throw it away and you'll never eat cauliflower again. It'll ruin your life. It's horrible microwave. It will stink. It's full of water. You take a bag out, you throw it in the sink. You let it defrost. You poke a bunch of holes in the bag and then you roll that bag down and you squeeze the ever loving crap out of it into the sink and you get all that nasty water go down the drain of the sink. Then you put it into your pan with your oil, your fat, whatever, and you fry it till all the cauliflower stink is gone until it's dried out quite a bit. And then if you use any kind of sauce, then you incorporate the sauce. So there's that's one of the uses for the oil. Here's another use for the oil. Let me see if I can find this picture right here. It is an incredible marinade. So here's something I did with this oil yesterday. I put, and this is another hack we'll talk about in a bit, a dozen shrimp into a chamber vacuum seal bag. I put a couple teaspoons of oil on the shrimp, and I vac-sealed the shrimp with the oil. I threw that in the refrigerator, and later I cooked them, and I'll show you real quick what they look like. when I, I put them on a kebab. This is not cooked. This is before they went in. Uh, and I just took some red jalapeno from the garden and, you know, shrimp, jalapeno, shrimp, jalapeno, shrimp, jalapeno, chopped up piece of jalapeno, cooked that on the flat top, served that with ribeye steak last night. I mean, that was better than anything we would have got if we went, went out to eat. And I bet you the plate we ended up with, again, ribeye steak, cauliflower rice kind of cooked the way I just said, plus that shrimp, that would have been $100 or, or more. I paid less than you would for a couple burgers at Five Guys for that whole meal. 
And that's what this does. That's what this type of thinking with your cooking does. It elevates everything. But um, on that salsa matcha, long way around, the reason I went up to that three cups, if you take a one-quart jar, once it's cooled down and it's all ready to go, you'll end up with a, a, almost a full-quart jar with you know maybe a, a half-inch to an inch of oil on top of, of the, the bulk of it, your, your, your chili peppers, your nuts, and everything. And then you, you'll end up being able, before you even put it in the jar, go ahead and pour off the excess oil. You'll get about a, a half-pint jar of just pure oil. And so I pour that. So when I have the pot, put a, a canning funnel in the little jar and then take a little strainer, a little, little colander, and I pour it through that and pitch back any of the hards that come out. And then that way, it'll all fit in that core jar. The recipe I have for you, it will not fit in a quart jar. And if you cut the oil down, you probably will not have enough oil to keep everything submerged in it. So that's one change I need to make in that uh, document before the show goes live on the auto side is three cups, not two cups of olive oil. But that salsa matcha, this is the first thing in my life I ever made. I started thinking about cooking shit just so I could use it. it it's I, there, I haven't found anything I, that I won't put it on. I don't put it on everything because you don't want everything to taste the same. Variety is a spice of life. But let me tell you, I, I'll sit and be like, well, what can I cook tonight so I can use some? Or what can I make for lunch that would be good with salsa matcha? And the answer is everything. Eggs and sausage with that on it is the bomb. I took a half pint jar of it when I had uh, lunch with my friend and his wife and, and my wife recently on a weekend. We went to a really elevated place. And I bring that jar and I tell him what it was. He got all excited and he went to put it away. I'm like, don't put that away. We're eating that. And uh, we, he and I both ordered crawfish pie. Yes, I ate carbs, and I'm not even sorry. I'm still obsessed with that piece of pie. That was one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. Uh, it was amazing on that. Uh, his wife uh, had it on some of her stuff. I think when we left, that jar was maybe a third of what it was when I walked in. Uh, if you like potatoes, this stuff like on a potato, especially like a potato that's been like smashed a little bit so it's open, like a fried smashed potato, oh, my God. It will change a little bit of your life. Now, there's one thing I didn't give you in the procedure there. It's all in the document, though. And that is once it's cooled down, let me say it again. Once it's cooled down, you need to put it in a blender or something like that. You want to pulse blend it until the uh, the chili peppers are broken down to chunky but not huge. Because if you sit there and try to cut it up in advance, it's a pain in the ass. It'll never work. The last batch I did, I tried using my immersion blender. And honestly, I need to take that jar and pulse blend it. The immersion blender just didn't get her done. It just didn't. So anyway, salsa matcha is something you need to know about. Next one is compound butter. And I'm going to run a little video in the background for those of you that are on the video here uh, feed, because I think that it will help you understand what I'm talking about at one point. Let me get that going and we'll get talking about it. Making compound butter is incredibly easy. Um, this gal's actually using some red wine vinegar in hers. That's not my thing. Um, but what I what I wanted this video to show you is how to roll it up in saran wrap after the fact. So if you see right now, for those watching the video, all she did was take the compound butter and she put it into some saran wrap. And, uh, that, and then you take that saran wrap and you put it into the refrigerator and you end up with a log of this compound butter. That'll, that way you can slice it in usable knobs and do stuff with it. My favorite compound butter to make is blue cheese garlic compound butter. And it is stupid simple. 
Again, it's not something I have a, a recipe written down for you with because it's too simple to do that. And it will be too limiting if I give you that recipe and you get stuck on it. So my rule for making a blue cheese compound butter is, number one, um, garlic goes in just about anything. So I usually put some garlic in there. And this is actually a place where that roasted garlic works really good. But you can use garlic powder because it will rehydrate with the butter, and that's kind of nice. Uh, or you can just use fresh chopped raw garlic or soft, any garlic you want. But the main two ingredients, obviously, are blue cheese and butter. So you leave a stick of butter out or more, depending on how much you want to make, to soften. You put it into a bowl. You put about an equal amount of blue cheese in it. And I've seen people use mixed hand mixers and shit. I don't use something that takes me longer to clean it than it'll take me to do it without it. That's my rule. If I'm going to, like, hand chop, make a mince of meat out of, like, a half a pound of meat, I'm not getting the grinder out for that. I could be done with the knives before I'm done cleaning the, the grinder. It takes me longer to get the grinder out than it's worth. Making compound butter with softened butter is so simple. You just use a fork and, and mash it up. Mix those together. Add a little bit of salt. Add some chopped garlic. And then take that and put it into um, – Put it into that uh, that saran wrap, and I'll, I'll run that video again for those of y'all. Can't rewind these shorts. Um, but get it into that saran wrap. And basically, for those on the audio, you just kind of hold the edges of the saran wrap once you've wrapped it up like a tube, and you start pushing it forward. And uh, once you push it forward, you kind of hold on to the ends, and you just pull it back and keep doing it until you get it really, really tight, and it'll make a nice, pretty log of butter. And then you, again, you get those nice discs. So what do you do with this once you have it? Well, what you do with this once you have it is, well, whatever you want. But here's one of my favorite things to do, and what I did with it last night. You take some beautiful, seared, gorgeous steak, and you take one of those knobs and you just put it right on top, and you let the residual heat in the steak melt that over the top of the steak. And it's flipping absolutely delicious. Or you break out your torch like a little benzomatic torch, and you put it on top of that steak and you melt it until it starts sizzling into the steak. What you don't do with it, personally, especially a blue cheese one, I wouldn't throw this in a pan and cook with it. I might like have something that I'll, like at the end of the cook, I'll melt it into. I think that would be delicious. But if you cook something like this, you kind of cook all of that flavor out. It dissipates. You, this, is a hot, this is a flavor bomb. Now, I'll tell you another Beautiful thing to do with it. If you, like me, are a bored person, you know, what's a bored person? A bored person is someone who likes to eat, you know, like charcuterie boards. When you put out a board, make a compound butter, and instead of making little hard discs out of it, put a bowl of it softened and whipped up on that board. Put out your little cracker, cheese, you know, whatever it is you do with your boards, little uh, toast points or whatever – Absolutely the bomb on something like that. But even if you're if you're a carnivore or you're a, a keto person, you don't want the crackers or anything, you know, a good hard piece of like salami or sopracetta with a little slather of that on it. And, it, OK, I said how to do blue cheese. This lady's making an herb. Do whatever you want with this. Do whatever you want with it. But I'll tell you a really cool way to like multitask. Make more than you need for your next cheese charcuterie board. A lot more than you need. Leave behind enough for the board and make the roll up for the refrigerator and toss that in the refrigerator and keep forever in the refrigerator. And the reason you want to refrigerate it and make it hard 
is so that you can cut off pieces and use it as needed. It looks good in the presentation, but it just works better that way. And so compound butter, if you've never made a compound butter, you need to make a compound butter. It will change the way you think about food. Moving on, dry brining. Dry brining sounds complicated. It's not. Dry brining means whatever you're going to cook, put salt on it and let it sit for a while before you cook it. Dry brining can be an hour. Dry brining can be a day. Dry brining can be two days. Be careful going much longer than that with most things. You're moving into the world of curing. And so the perfect example of something that will just immediately elevate the second you take on dry brining is steak. If you don't dry brine your steak, I don't know why you're spending money on steak. I mean, if you're going to make a roast or something, I, I get it. It may not need to be done. It would be better if you did, but I, you know, it's not that big a deal. But you're going to make a steak on the grill, or you're going to get a really great, you know, carbon steel or you know, cast iron pan. Get it nice and hot. You're going to get your grease going, and you're going to do the ladle thing and add your herbs and garlic and all that shit. And you're not going to dry brine your steak. Did you even try? Because let me tell you why you can't, like, you just like, I can't get the sear that I see on these you know videos and stuff. Where's that sear? Where the guy takes the knife and he scrapes the freaking steak and it sounds like a piece of burnt toast. It's so crispy on the outside. That's because there ain't no dadgone water there. When you take a piece of meat and it's bleeding water and you put it onto the hottest surface you can get, you know, in within reason, most of us don't have a 3,000 degree broiler or some shit like that. Um, they're actually, that, that's a little exaggeration. There are some restaurants that are cooking with like 1,000 degree broilers to cook their steaks, and it's pretty amazing. You don't have one. You need every advantage you can get. So it's, it's always a good idea to take paper towel and kind of blot off steak. And if you're going to season it further, then you season it after that. It's always a good idea. But when you put salt on meat or anything for that matter. It starts pulling moisture out. And some will go back in, but it pulls enough out that you don't have this kind of wet surface. And so when you drop that down, you get that harsh, beautiful sear. The sear I got last night, and I'll talk another piece of that puzzle here in a second, but my God, it was beautiful. I just sat there and looked at my plate and thought, God, I can't wait to eat that. And then I did. It was amazing. Uh, you should try it. But dry brining also adds flavor. It keeps things more juicy, and you can do it with anything. You know those shrimp I had up? Okay. They come from butcher box. Great quality. But in the end, they're a frozen shrimp. Frozen shrimp always end up, just like that cauliflower rice, with more moisture in them than if they were fresh. Most things when frozen end up with more moisture in them, okay? And so they end up just not quite so nice. So what I did with those shrimp, I put them down on a piece of paper towel. I sprinkled salt, flipped them, sprinkled salt, threw a paper towel on them, threw them in the refrigerator. All that took about the same amount of time it took me to say it. So it didn't take any real time to do. About an hour and a half later, I went, blotted them off with a dry towel, and put them into that bag with the oil Back seal and pitch them back in the in the uh, in the refrigerator. It took me longer to go outside, push the button on the sealer, than it did to actually do the work. And those two little steps elevated that dish so much. That garlic and chili. I can't tell you yet about the vacuum seal reason because it's another hack. Um, but that that dry brine on the shrimp. You can do this with fish. You you know you take it another step and you're starting to cure or partially cure. But steaks, 
and poultry to me should always be dry brined 100 percent of the time. My my suggestion is that you get a regular sheet baking pan and you get a cooling rack like for cookies and then those cooling racks nest straight into the sheet pan. Dry brine your meat and set it on that so it's got airflow underneath it and set that into your refrigerator. You'll get much better results that way because moisture can drip. And you usually, when you take it out, you'll see moisture in that pan. All that moisture is now not in your meat. Because when you take wet meat, you put on hot surface, you get a, you get a, a surface tension of moisture, and now you're steaming the outside of your meat, and that's why it won't crisp. That's, that's one of the best things I can give you. The other thing is, when you do this, You'll notice that the meat changes in texture. It becomes tenderized by the salt. It also, like steak, will get a darker red. It looks better because it is. But when you feel it as it dries, it'll get kind of tacky and sticky. So now when you throw your rub onto it, whatever that may be, it's going to stick better for you. And so everything gets better when we dry brine. How much? If you, you know, use what you think, eat it. If it was too salty, use less next time, right? If you didn't get the results, use a little bit more. But trust yourself. This isn't hard. Don't bury it in salt, right? There is a salted steak thing. We're not going to talk about that today. That's a different thing altogether. So take a shitty cut and make it into a good cut. I've talked about it in the past. Let's move on. Uh, next up, on the searing thing, you want to get an excellent sear, something that almost looks like you put a blackened Cajun seasoning on it without having a lot of flavor contribution. So whatever else you've done still shines through. Chili powder, my friends. I don't care what kind of plain old chili powder like you make chili with. Just don't put a lot on and it won't contribute much flavor. Just dust chili powder. And if you're doing a different rub, put that rub down after the chili powder. Get the chili powder right on the meat on that sticky surface you made by dry brining. And then go ahead with whatever your other rub is or just salt and pepper, whatever you're going to do. By the way, when you dry brine, you, it, you should be doing it at a level where you can still salt on the outside, but reduce the amount you would use a little bit. But that chili pepper, when it, you get it on that hot surface and it comes in contact with that fat, it will literally fry the way we fried it in that salsa matcha, and you'll get a crust like you can't believe. You'll get a mixed crust. You'll get kind of that brown crust from everything else, and the chili pepper will almost turn like a dark black, but it won't taste burnt. It is absolutely gorgeous what it does chicken and steak especially but shrimp you want to get a see the problem with trying to get a good sear on shrimp is the number one reason that shrimp suck is that they were overcooked and they turned into little hockey pucks so you can only keep that shrimp on a hot surface for so long little dusting of chili powder on those shrimp which is what i did with that kebab oh yeah then you get that that kind of black and cajuning thing without the Cajun flavor, okay? Now, Chef Paul Perdome's black and redfish seasoning will do the same thing, but you're going to bring a lot of flavor with that. But it'll get you that dark color. Uh, next up, let's talk about, uh, where are we at here? Chamber vac machines. So I said I had to hold back there for a minute, but I, uh, I put those shrimp, like I said, into the chamber vac, and this happens to be, if you're watching on the screen here, this is the chamber vacuum sealer that I own. It's made by a company called VacMaster. And I brought it up today. I do have a link in the audio notes for you if you want one of these. It's on sale today. It's like the best price you're going to get on it. They're like $1,150. Bucks. 
And that is ship free to your door, Amazon guarantee, all of that stuff. Um, this was the one I selected when I decided to buy the bullet and get one. I'm going to show you a less expensive one and tell you the trade-offs with it in just a minute. But I want to tell you about what a chamber vat can do. Besides, I brought a whole bunch of meat home and I want to put it in my freezer and I don't want it to spoil. What can it do beyond that? It accelerates marination almost instantly. The longer you leave it, the more that that's true, though. So the reason I put those shrimp in the refrigerator in that vacuum seal bag and that chili garlic oil from the salsa matcha is when you pull all that air out, you're kind of forcing your marinade into your food. There's a lot of things you can play with with this. Like you can take ice cold water and put very thinly sliced vegetables in it and, and put that into a chamber vac and it will give those vegetables a crisp like you can't believe. One of the chefs in the audience reached out and told me that back when I got this. And my God, it works. But for marination, acceleration, this thing is, that makes it a multitasker. It's not just for storing food. Now, let's say you want one of these and you don't want to spend friggin' $1,100. Well, I understand. And it just so happens this one's on sale today, too. It's only 14% off, but it's only 310 bucks on sale. And it's made by a company called Abbott Armor. They're very, very well thought of. The, the trade-off here is you have a much smaller and shallower chamber, so you can't put as large of bags or as large of items in it. But it would be fine for people who want to do like two steaks at a time or a roast or what have you. Big items ain't going to fit. Now, one of the other trade-offs with this, and again, multitasking is important to me. And again, I got links to all this in the audio notes is that you can seal dry goods in quart jars with a chamber vacuum sealer if the chamber's big enough for the jar to fit. The one I have um, by VacMaster, two full quart jars laying on their sides will fit in the chamber. And you put dry goods in it, you put the lid on, the, you know, the, the, the disc, and you put the ring on loose, just enough to hold the disc in place, you lay the jars on their side, you run the cycle, and when the chamber clears, the jars are sealed. Since we've gotten that, I have a great big, you know, built out of a pressure cooker, modified with a vacuum pump and all. I'm probably going to barter that this year. I've never pulled it out to use it since we got the VacMaster because I don't really need to do that many at a time. Uh, so, you know, it's not that long to run a cycle. So if I want to do something like that. Now, here's another thing you can do. If you bring your salad greens home, give them a good wash, soak, and drain. Then throw them in one of those jars, vacuum seal that, and throw that in your refrigerator. Your salad greens will last a hell of a lot longer that way. So you keep your salad greens fresh. There's a lot of multitasking, but the hack, if you have one or if you're going to add one to your life, is the acceleration of marinades. Now, if you're thinking... Well, damn, Jack, I could take a thing that I, once I've done it and I know I like that marinade and I could put the stuff in there, the meat in there or whatever it is and pour that marinade on it and chamber vac seal that sucker. And I could do one for tonight and three or four, label them and throw them in the freezer. And when I pull them out, I got a pre-marinated, ready to go. You are starting to think the way I want you to think in this show. You really are. That's exactly what you can do. There's a lot of things you can do. Now, let's talk a little bit more about chamber vacs before we move on. Why you'd want to spend the extra money over, you know, I got a food saver or whatever. 
Anybody that's ever tried to use a regular vacuum sealer knows if the thing you're trying to vacuum seal has any moisture at all, moisture comes up the bag and ruins the seal every stinking time. With a chamber vac, you completely evacuate the chamber, the seal bar goes, and then the air is let back in. So when you're chamber vacuum sealing something, it looks like the bag's not collapsing because it's not because the pressure is equal inside and outside, but there's no oxygen at all. And then when the bar releases and the air comes back in, the bag collapses onto the food. And that's when you go buy stuff in the freezer section and it's so beautifully vacuum sealed. That's the kind of technology that they're using. One more thing before we go on. All these chamber vacs have a lot of settings as to how long they vacuum for, how long they seal for, and how long that they cool for before you can open them. All right. The recommended settings on mine were nowhere near as long as it needed to be. It's something you'll have to play play with. It's just something you need to know. And if you know that and you go into it with that, you won't get frustrated and think this thing doesn't work. And one more thing before we move on from vacuum sealers. Did you know that liquids boil at a lower temperature in a vacuum like space? Yes, they do. So one time I was making a whole shitload of a garlic onion cream sauce for workshops last year. Okay. Uh, for the fall workshop, and I let it cool down to where it was like warm, but it wouldn't even burn. Like you could have held it in your hands and it wouldn't have burned you. And I put about a half a gallon of that shit into a bag and stuck it into my chamber vacuum machine. And I spent about an hour cursing and yelling and being pissed off and cleaning out a complete disgusting mess. It was probably about 95 degrees still when I stuck it in there. And it was a half a gallon. It immediately went to a boil and it exploded inside my chamber vacuum machine. Don't do that. That right there just saved you a bad day and six beers and a lot of cuss words. All right. Moving on from there. What about waffle irons? Now, I've talked about using waffle irons to make things like chaffles and things. And I recently brought around the waffle cone maker, which is basically a waffle iron that's much thinner for doing wraps like cheese wraps, egg and cheese wraps, uh, using pork rind and egg to make basically taco shells. And it's, you know, it's carnivore keto because you can add other things into them. I talked about chaffles and adding things like almond meal to get more of a bread-like texture out of them and all. And they do all that really well. But if you ain't keto, other than the fact that chaffles are really freaking good, you probably don't care. Did you know you can do more with a waffle iron than make waffles or chaffles or keto wraps, though? What about cheese wraps? I mean, you might want a cheese wrap, not because you're keto, just because you want a cheese wrap. It's literally this easy. A little bit of lubricant on your on your uh, waffle iron, and specifically your flat iron, the one, the little cone maker that I recommend. You throw a handful of cheese there, whatever kind you want the wrap to be, and close it. That's it. When you open it up, that'll peel right off. Set it on a paper towel to drain the excess oil that will come out of the cheese, and you have, as long as you don't cook it too long, you have a flexible cheese wrap. What if you want to just do something because you don't care about your health at all and you just want to do something fun? You take a flour tortilla, put it in there, put a handful of cheese on it, and close that, and you will make an amazing like open-faced quesadilla out of that, which could become a taco or a burrito that would be really cool. There's a lot of things you can do. Do you know that waffle irons do a great job of cooking bacon? They really do. Now, I would set it on something so your excess grease has a place to go. Because if you cook enough of it, some of it's going to come out. You need to dry it off when you're done. But it makes really good bacon, especially when you just want a little bit of bacon to go with your breakfast. Um, 
yeah, it, you 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 can make a couple three pieces of bacon. Your keto, you want a BLT, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, and you don't want to do a chaffle BLT. You just want a BLT, no bread. Take your bacon and make a weave. I can't go into how to do that, but basically make a weave of your bacon and set it on your waffle iron and close it. Do that twice and make a BLT and the sandwich is the bacon. So you've got lettuce and tomato and you got it surrounded by two weaves of bacon. How about eggs? You know, we talk about chaffles all the time, but just scramble an egg and throw it on a mini waffle maker. It makes a great egg bite. You want to have some stuff in it. Let's say you want some sausage and jalapeno egg bite. That's what you would like. Have a sausage cooked already when you do this. Mix up, you know, scramble your eggs. You have to play with it to figure out how not to put too much in. Put your egg there. Throw a little bit of uh, jalapeno and sausage on it and close the waffle iron for a couple minutes. You get a beautiful egg bite. Beautiful finger food. You know what's good on that? Jalapeno cream cheese and a sprinkle of uh, Trader Joe's, anything but the ba- everything but the bagel mix. There's a ton of stuff you can do with waffle irons. It's quick cleanup. It's quick prep work. It, it, it's for those of you that need quick, especially breakfast. It's just freaking awesome. And I do have y'all's questions. Uh, Wild Blue Whippets, K Bonk, and Bill. I got y'all's questions started, so you don't think I'm ignoring you. We'll come back to them at the end. Uh, next up, baking powder on chicken skin. See, I'm giving you some of the stuff spread out, and I'm using the same example. So remember that chicken that I talked about that we put the garlic parmesan on? So my wife wanted wings that day, and I went out to the freezer, and I remembered that my last shipment from ButcherBox had a couple packages of drumsticks in it. So I went back inside. Would you be okay with drumsticks, honey? They're bigger. They're easier. It's less work for me. She said yes. So I'm like, all right, drumsticks. I got to pack the drumsticks out. And I'm not going to tell you the next step until later. But, of course, I gave them a dry brine, all right, salt and, and a dry brine. Uh, then I seasoned them up. But right before I put the rub on, I took about a tablespoon of baking powder. And if you're like the keto police, yes, there's carbs in there. But the amount of carbs over the entire batch, which we're not even done with yet, was like 14. So maybe, maybe one to a leg. And it's probably not even that. I think there was 18 legs, 14 carbs of baking powder. So less than one per, per, per leg. You sprinkle the baking powder just a little bit all over the chicken skin. Okay, and then you let it, it'll disappear, maybe massage it in a little bit and let it sit. It will vanish. You'll think you didn't put any on it. Then put whatever seasoning you want on on top of that and cook that chicken. I don't care if you fry it. I don't care if you pan fry it. I don't care if you oven bake it. I don't care if you do indirect heat on the grill, which is what I do with it. It will be the chicken, chick, uh, crispiest chicken skin you have ever had. Ever. And whatever you do with it, it will. It will so like if you say, well, I had you know deep fried chicken and it was well, it will make deep fried chicken skin crispier. Even if you batter it, it will make the underlying skin. I don't know how it works. I don't know the scientific explanation. It's not necessary. All I know is it works. And it, my understanding is the genesis comes out of Korean cooking, Korean fried chicken. They were kind of the ones that came up with this hack. I'm sure other people did it, too. But that's where I know it from. And it works 
freaking amazing. Let's go on so I can complete this chicken one. I'm actually going to skip one of my bullet points and come back to it. If I if the next one I say after this doesn't have something to do with mustard, y'all in the y'all in the live feed, keep me in line and remind me to go back to it so I don't lose my place. So those chicken legs. I'm about to tell you how to take drumsticks to another level, and all you need is a knife. Anybody here in the live chat ever hear of butterfly and chicken legs? It's really easy. You turn the chicken leg until you find kind of the place where the bone is the closest to the surface. It's kind of the backside. You take your knife and go right down to the bone. You don't debone the leg, though. You kind of cut on both sides of the legs, and you push it till it's flat so that one side you're looking at meat and the other side you're looking at skin. This makes it flatter and more even and it will cook better. You do everything that I've talked about up to now, the dry brine, right? And the, the crispy skin using the, uh, the baking powder. And you just took, I mean, honest to God, this is, this is just a beautiful thing. You use whatever seasoning you want. I can't even remember what I seasoned them with. I think I had a, a pre-mixed seasoning that I had made for other things that was more kind of going towards Southwest uh, Tex-Mex seasoning with some chili powder, stuff like that's what I used on. And, well, I can't tell you because it's another hack that we'll get to in just a bit, but indirect, indirect heat on the grill. And you cook them until they're done, and that skin will be beautiful. And here's a couple of things that are going on with this. One, when you pick that up to eat it, it's really easy to eat. Because you flayed it open, so you're just kind of eating it off both sides. Two, you're still cooking it on the bone because you haven't deboned it. So I do believe that food tastes better cooked on the bone. But who here has made chicken and you got great crispy skin, you know, with an indirect heat or an oven or something like that. But halfway through your cook, air fryer, whatever you're doing, convection row, I don't care. You went in and you did what they say. You took stuff out. You flipped it upside down. You turned it. And the, the top skin was beautiful and the bottom skin was kind of sad. And you put it back in. And when you take it out, the top skin's beautiful and the bottom's, it's not as sad as the first time, but it's not, it's not what you were looking for. Well, when you butterfly a chicken wing, okay, one side skin, one's not. So all you do and with, with, with the grill, I usually will flip it skin side down over direct heat right at the end. But you finish your roast with the skin up. The other side of this is we've opened up that wing, the meat. So when we apply a rub or seasoning or herbs, it goes into the meat, into the meat, right? I got your question there, K-Monk. And that one is it depends on what you're looking for, but it's not really that important. It'll work out either way. Just make sure you finish it with skin up if you're doing indirect heat. If you're putting it over direct heat, anyway, we'll come back to that. But you're letting the flavor get into the meat. So we have, you can even do this if you just want to be kind of funny. You can use one type of rub on the skin and another type of rub on the chicken. Why not? That would be kind of fun. Oh, you want to take it to another level. Well, you could do something like get something like gochujang, which is a Korean chili paste. And make a uh, make a baste with that. Mix it with maybe a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of beer to thin it out. And then right at the end, paint that crispy skin with that. Don't worry about painting it on the bottom. Let the contrast have like a salty, savory thing going on and a little bit of sweet heat on the top. Like, don't be limited based on what I did. Because I made 
the Parmesan garlic sauce on top of that, and that was the bomb too. But that's what that's what just knowing what to do with a knife can change. So everything else, if you made that chicken, those chicken legs whole, that way they would still be good. But you would never get all the skin crisp, and you would never get the flavor into the meat the way you can. And if you're thinking, Jack, should I butterfly it before I dry brine it? Yes, you should. And that if you're thinking that, then that's the kind of thinking I'm trying to get going on in this show today. When you open that up and you give it that salt, the salt's going to penetrate into the meat a lot better than it will through the skin. And so the salt's going to do one thing to the skin and it's kind of a little bit of a different thing to the meat. It's not going to make the skin tender. It's going to dry the skin out. It's going to help tenderize the meat. All right, we don't need the skin to be tender. It's already tender and delicious. Uh, moving on. Mustard. I didn't blow it, so now you don't have to tell me. How about, have you ever heard of mustard caviar? Mustard caviar? It, it isn't what it sounds like. It's just a fancy name for whole seed mustard. And there is a whole school of making caviars that are not made from fish eggs. That's obviously real caviar. I can't get into it today, but I've seen people do things like make caviar out of tomato water or caviar out of coffee. And it involves using agar and chilled oil and a bottle and you make the stuff up and you drop it a bead at a time into the chilled oil and, make, and then you strain it off and you get these little beads that pop. Okay. This is the freaking easiest way I know to get that experience. And so this is one that I do have the recipe for in today's episode notes. And I will bring it up for you right here. And it's, this is my recipe. I've worked on this a while to come to this. And this one's, this one's gilding the lily a little bit because here's what's in it. A half a cup of yellow mustard seeds and a half a cup of brown or black mustard seeds. I use both. So yellow is a much more mild mustard. So I don't want to use like a third, a third, and a third. I use basically a half a cup of yellow and then a quarter cup of brown and a quarter cup of black. One half cup of white wine. One quarter cup of rye whiskey. You don't have to put those in it, but then you need to substitute three quarters more cup of water or something else because you need something for the mustard seeds to absorb. Uh, a half a cup of water and a teaspoon of salt. And then the instructions are there. But the instructions are basically you mix it all together. You mix it all together. You put it in a jar and you let the mustard seeds rehydrate for a couple of days. Then you add the salt. The salt's the only thing you don't, you wait to add till the end. You mix the salt in and then you're probably in a bowl, something that's easy to work with when you're doing this. Go ahead and transfer it to jars. Just mix a couple jars and throw in the refrigerator. Keep probably longer than you will once it's in there. Cause you've got the alcohol. You've got, uh, the, the acidity from the vinegar. You've got the salt. It's, it's a very well preserved thing. Now, why would you want to do something like this? Why not just go buy yellow paint mustard? Because it tastes like ass, that's why, because it's not very good. But remember we were talking about charcuterie boards? This stuff on a charcuterie board is the bomb. And I had forgotten all about doing this. I hadn't made this forever. And I went to a Bitcoin meetup recently, and we ordered a charcuterie board for the table. My wife and I ordered one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot. And it turned out that the stuff they had, the owner of the place made it himself, but he wasn't there, so I couldn't ask him how he did his. But what happens when you make mustard this way, it's a totally different experience. If you don't care for mustard, you may or may not like this. 
But just because you don't like mustard like on a sandwich doesn't mean you won't like this, especially if we're not talking about a good stone ground mustard. We're talking about yellow paint. Yellow paint mustard has no place on this planet except for rubbing like a brisket or a pork shoulder to make a rub stick, and then you cook the flavor out of it or make it a, a crab cake. Yellow paint mustard does not go on food as is infinity. It's awful. I will fight you on it. But this stuff, when you bite into it, those just like caviar, they pop. And it's this huge pop of flavor. And you got the whiskey and the white wine. And, you know, when people talk about cooking with wine, they say don't cook with a wine you wouldn't drink. And while I'll agree, they always try to elevate that to like where you're using like an expense, like a $25, $30 plus bottle of wine to cook with. I don't believe in that. I don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. I cook with like eight to $12 bottles of wine if I'm going to cook with wine. Like, a, um, like, like if you're going to do mussels with a white wine and garlic sauce. You know, your typical bottle of Kendall Jackson or Robert Mondavi or something, your lower end white Chardonnay will do great for that. Because you're not cooking this, I would use a decent rye and a good white. Like, again, you have to go like a stupid expensive, some sort of white, you know, burgundy or something like that from the south of France. And, you know, it's a $50 bottle of wine. But like a, uh, a good Kendall Jackson, like an upper end Kendall Jackson dinner's reserve or something like that. Because you're going to taste that flavor come through. I don't put sugar in mine. I don't see a need for it. But it does give some balance. In the recipe guide, I give you kind of some ways to factor that in. The truth is, if you put a tablespoon of sugar into that recipe, you're never going to eat enough of it to realize more than the carb out of it anyway if you're an anti-carb person like me. So don't not do it because I don't do it. But you might want to make it and split it in half and... Try it both ways. Why not? Learn from your own experimentation. Moving on, how about flavored salts? I also have a recipe for you on this one. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen because it's not necessary for a rosemary salt. Now, I found a dude that claims to be the source of this particular recipe online. I've seen it a lot of places. I don't remember where or when I found it, but to give him credit, I have a link in the notes today to his version of how to make it. I love what he does. But I have one more step that I add. So, and I also want you to realize this is a rosemary salt, and it also has garlic and sage in it. But you can make any flavored salt you want. Rosemary and thyme is very good. A basil salt is very good. A celery salt is very good, but it requires an extra step that I'll give you in a second. But basically, this is a five-minute process. You take a food processor. I use my little mini food processor. I'll add that to the notes because I know I didn't today. That Basically, it's an immersion blender and a mini food processor in one. I don't think this is worth getting out uh, my big Proctor Silex for. But you could use a Nutri-Ninja. You could use a regular blender. You could use a Vitamix. You can use anything you want. You put salt, in this case about a cup, into, the, into whatever you're going to grind it up with. You take your herbs and your garlic and you add it to your salt and you spin it around really, really fast until you cut up all the herbs and incorporate them in the salt. That's it. Again, the one that he does is rosemary, sage leaf, and garlic. And he says something that normally I disagree with, but I don't disagree with it here. Don't go ahead and take his recipe of four garlic cloves and make it like 12 because you like garlic. Because I do that all the time. With a salt like this, though, that's too much moisture in the salt. And it's more garlic than you need for something like this. You can always add more garlic in another form when you're cooking if you want to. But this is really a great, this, this rosemary salt is a great finishing salt. 
this will blow people like this on top of a steak, especially if you've kind of kind of gone toward the Mediterranean side of things with your whole meal is unbelievable. And it's in salt. It lasts forever. Now, this is the one thing I do differently. And I think this is really worth doing when I'm done making it. I take a plate or a sheet or flat Tupperware and I put the salt on a single layer like fairly thin layer of salt, and I just let it sit out for like four or five hours. What this does is that salt's pulling because this is a fr- you want to do this with fresh herbs if you can. If you can't, if it's do it with fresh, it's do it dried herbs or don't do it. Go ahead and do it with the dried herbs. But if you have fresh herbs and this rosemary, I really recommend you use a fresh herb, and I'll talk about why in a second. If you let the salt sit out for a bit, the moisture evaporates off as the salt's pulling moisture out of your your fresh herbs. And so you get a drier salt that'll keep better and clump less. Now, I know that because people that should not be in charge of picking up dog shit run our government, that when you buy salt that has an expiration date on it, I understand that. That expiration date is bullshit. That salt's been in the ground for 50 million years unless it was freshly harvested from the sea. And then it's as old as the earth anyway. Salt does not expire. So if you make an herb salt, and it clumps, just put it back in your blender or food processor and chop it up again and throw it back in your container. It'll be fine. I promise you, it won't go bad even with the herbs in it. Now, here's the key. Let's say you want to make a celery salt. Celery has quite a bit of water in it. What I would do to make a celery salt is cut up as much celery as you want to use in it, stick it in your dehydrator, and, and dehydrate it till it's about halfway there where you're like Bon Jovi living on a prayer and then do everything else that I said. And the reason for that is so there's not too much moisture in there. But this is why we want some moisture if we can, because I will do this with a, with a dry herb if I had to. But if I have some moisture, I'm going to get a better result. And the reason is when that herb is be, having its moisture drawn out by salt, unlike just by drifting away in the air. It's going to pull flavor. The moisture, the salt's going to get uh, moist, and it's going to that flavor is going to end up bound to the salt through this osmotic process, and you're going to get a much higher quality seasoned salt that way than you would otherwise. And there is, I'm going to tell you this: there is nothing that I know of on the market that you can buy like this. And you could take it to another level. What if you were to use something like a smoked salt? And just what else could we talk about using a smoked salt for what we had done today? Now, K-Bonk just brought up a very good point here. If you have nice, high-quality leaf from your celery, use that instead, and then you don't have to dehydrate it. That's actually, K-Bonk, you're a very astute astute man. I'll say young, but I don't know your age. You might be younger or older than me, so I don't want to call you. Young. I don't want to ever call somebody a young man when they're older than me. It just, I don't know, it rubs you the wrong way when somebody does that. Um, but I grow white and pink Chinese celery, and they're more of a cutting celery anyway. And I take kind of the top stem plus that, and there's not much moisture there. That's what I do. Um, but if you're buying store-bought celery, unless you have a really nice leaf, you would probably get more flavor and better results from de- semi-dehydrating the stalks. But you can do anything you want. Uh, Cletus says use lovage, and I bet that would be good. I don't grow lovage. It doesn't do well for me, but I bet it would do really, really well. Um, but you guys are getting it. Whatever you can think of, try it. 
Make a smaller batch. Instead of making a cup of it, make a quarter cup of it. It's salt and some herbs. If you're like, that's ass, throw it away and don't do that again. Just don't put it where you're trying to grow stuff because salt will kill things in the ground, right? Uh, moving on, let's talk about where we at now. Second Life Pickles. This is what I've mentioned on the air a few times, but I couldn't leave it out today. I don't understand how people make a pickle or go buy a pickle and then eat everything in it. And I don't, when I say pickle, I don't mean cucumbers. I mean anything, a pickled asparagus, pickled beans, I don't care what. And then when they're done, they just throw away the pickle juice. Don't do that. It's still got, it's, it's not done yet, right? It's got more to do. One thing you can do, and this is another bonus, and you should sometimes, is you pour it on chicken and marinate chicken in that, especially in a chamber vac bag. It'll work even better. You know, when you get chicken like from Popeye's and it has that amazing juiciness in it, that's part of the secret. That's an old Southern hack is marinating chicken in pickle juice. I think the first fast food place that really perfected that was Chick-fil-A, if I'm not wrong. Um, but I also believe my second life pickles. What's seven, second life pickles? That's where we take something. We just put it in the, the pickle juice from the last batch of pickles. And this is really great for you guys with gardens that are home setters. Because what inevitably happens is you get this really prolonged, small kind of foraging level harvest. Most of us aren't building many farms in our backyard. That's that's how I grew up. My grandparents in Pennsylvania, our garden looked like a market garden for a spin farmer today. You had a row of tomatoes and a row of cucumbers and a row of broccoli and a row of green beans. And like I'm talking like a 50 foot four foot wide row of everything. And there were a few things like maybe we had, you know, green beans on one side and wax beans on the other or something like that. But most of it was a full row. And my grandparents were full on homesteaders. We did lots. My grandmother did lots of canning and stuff every year. Me, I don't want that in my life. I'm a, I'm an animal based diet is what I am, especially now. And so what I want is like, I want to go out today and I want to pick a handful of yard long beans and, you know, one cucumber for a salad and a couple jalapenos to to cook with my dinner, with my shrimp. And most home gardeners, that's kind of where they're at with it if they're not into the big time food preservation side of things. So what happens is you go out and like if you grow what I do, which are mouse melons, which I love, which are a little cucumber melon. They look like a little, like they look like a, a watermelon with stripes on it that a mouse could hold. That's what I call them. That they're also known as Mexican sour gherkin. They make an incredibly good pickle. I get a little handful every day, and then the heat gets really high and they stop producing, and then I get a lot more at the end of the season. Well, all I do is I go out, I pick some, I eat a couple, I bring them in, I rinse them off, and I throw them into um, a jar that had pickles in it. And now I've got a full jar of them. They're an awesome freaking martini garnish, by the way. They're also an awesome freaking garnish for Bloody Marys. And they're also just awesome to eat. They're awesome in a salad. There's a lot of things you can do with them. But all I've done is pitch back. And yet you can, like, if you get pickled jalapenos, now you've got a spicy brine. Now you can put that on your chicken, or you can back pitch, back pitch things that you want to pickle. Those yard-long beans, if you guys grow the Asian long yard beans, like the red ones or the green ones, you just cut them the length of the jar and stick them in there. And just put it back in the refrigerator. That's all you have to do. You don't have to always can something to pickle it or whatever. Just pitch it into the brine and everything will be fine. Now, I am of the school of thought, the next time that's 
wiped out, I'm not big on third life pickles. That's where it becomes a marinade for something else. The dog's losing her mind for some reason, but she'll just have to deal with it. Uh, moving on, beef tallow for searing. Now, I've brought around as an item of the day several times, South Chicago Packaging has a big giant tub you can buy of Wagyu beef tallow. I don't care what tallow you use. It's going to work really well um, for you for searing. But this stuff for the money is the bomb. The flavor that it, it has you know, using Wagyu tallow. But last night when I made those steaks, so again, we're talking about layering these techniques together. I did them on a black stone. So you're already like primo for searing. But I laid down like a tablespoon of that beef tallow, took my spatula and spread it out, and then took those dried, sticky, dry brined, well-rubbed ribeyes, and boom, right down on that blackstone. And I only ran them like the first time for like 90 seconds on one side. And when I turned it, it was already gorgeous. A little bit of that chili powder on there, guys, to get that extra bit going on. Turned it over on the flat cap. Got mine to where it was just barely cooked. Off it came, left the wife's on to ruin it. I'm sorry. That's how I feel about my wife. I was medium well. Uh, got hers to where I knew it was done, and they were gorgeous. You can get a great sear without the beef tallow, but you get the best sear, in my opinion, with beef tallow. There's a lot of other things you can do with beef tallow as well, but I highly recommend if you if you like this kind of stuff, that you give that Chicago product a try, Chicago packaging. Um, I don't remember how much it is. I have a link in the show notes, but one tub of it lasts a long time. On that product, if you read the reviews, again, they allow God's special children to write reviews on Amazon. And it's important that you keep that in mind. You'll see people saying, like, some of it was missing or whatever. Wagyu tallow melts at a much lower temperature than um, let's say regular beef tallow or lard or what have you. It's if you touch it and it starts to melt in your fingers. It's it's that easy for it to melt. Way lower than butter. So what happens? It gets shipped around, turned around, tossed around in boxes. It gets melted and resolidifies, and it kind of shapes different ways in there, and it'll look like maybe it's not missing. It's it's packaged by weight. So it's a great product. Every one of you guys that have used it have told me it's a great product. Next up, here's what I got for you. I bet you good 10 to 25% or more of this audience keeps chickens and or ducks on their homestead. And you got lots of eggs. I'm about to tell you one of the things that you should have been taught how to do with an egg when you was born because it's glorious and most people have no idea how to do it. Salted egg yolks. I also have the full procedure in the document in today's show notes for this, but it's really simple. And even though the recipe has an amount of salt, it doesn't matter. It's salt. It's cheap. Quit whining. Uh, I would not use a really high quality salt. Like I love Redmond's. I wouldn't use Redmond's for this. Just any salt will work though. I will say this is another instance where using a smoke salt. And I have not tried that yet. And I kind of feel stupid for not having tried this yet. But a smoke salt in this might add another layer of complexity. Now, here's the thing. If you're smoking something anyway, there's nothing stops you from taking, let's say, a couple cups of salt, spreading it out on a tray and sticking it in your smoker and making your own smoke salt. Yes, you can do that. Anyway, just saying you got regular salt. You take a container. You put a layer of salt in it. 
And if you're going to make four egg yolks or two egg yolks or six egg yolks, you make a little well in the salt, a little hole in the salt. You separate your whites from your yolks. Do something else with your whites. Don't throw them away. If nothing else, feed them to the dog. Dogs love egg yolks. All right. Dogs love raw eggs in general. Put your egg yolk into each of the little wells and then cover it with more salt. Close the container, set it in the refrigerator. You really don't have to put it in the refrigerator, but assuming you have room, it is a best practice. Three to four days. Check your yolks at three to four days. They should be a little squishy, but very stable. You should be able to pick it up. It won't break real easy, what have you, and rinse the salt off of it. Now, the next step is optional, but highly recommended. I have the times and procedure to do it with an oven or a dehydrator, but you want to really further dry these out, right? Did they, yeah, K-Bonk's got it. There it is, jumping ahead like, like the first, what well, the, the class favorite or whatever it is. That's who K-Bonk is, right? It's like cheese when you do this. You grate it with a fine grater. This is the charcuterie boards again. I mean, just, or like even like a really nice medium rare New York strip steak. And then you take the oil from that salsa matcha and you just drizzle that. I would actually lay that oil down on the plate, set the New York strip on it, and then grate that egg yolk over the top of it. It's a totally new level of things. But what it's also doing is you have this incredibly high-quality protein and fat that you're growing in your backyard. There's, there's nothing in the store that compares to your eggs or your neighbor's eggs. And let me be very clear what I mean by that. If you buy cage-free, organic, brown eggs from Trader Joe's, or in your backyard, you have actual free-range birds, and you're feeding them Purina, your eggs are better. So anything you're beyond Purina and letting your birds out once in a while, there's, there, there is nothing you can buy in a store that compares to that. You might buy it on a farm stand or a farmer's market, but you're not buying it in a store, equal quality. So now you've got this incredible protein but, you know, I, there's people that will sit down and eat eight eggs for breakfast every day, and there's people that won't. Now we're taking, like, the heart of the egg, literally. That yolk is where the most nutrition is. The, the white is the protein, but the fat in the nutrition is in that yolk. That's to make – that's everything needed to make a whole chicken, right? That's what a yolk is. It makes a chicken. Now you're taking that and you're putting it in a form where you'll use it in other places. And because it's salted, it's also salty. It's if you do it right, it's about the salt level of like a good Parmesan, right? It's not like straight salt. If it's straight salt, you probably left it too long. It turned into a rock. But it has a salty, cheese-like flavor. And I just, when I was putting this together uh, today, um, I, I thought to myself, why, 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 Jack, why? Why have you never, ever, ever put smoked salt in there? And my first thought was a little liquid smoke. Like, screw liquid smoke, just smoke the salt. It's not hard. It's not hard at all. Uh, K. Bonk is saying right now in Italy they use duck legs, eggs mostly, and they, they do in uh, the Far East as well. And this is traditionally done with duck eggs. And I do mine with duck eggs because I have ducks, but it works with chicken eggs. This is like charcuterie master level, and then you can do other things with it. Definitely worth doing. Really simple. 
And I will tell you, I think most people do not know how to separate an egg. And I see there's two things I want to talk about with eggs here that I see on TV all the time that you should never do. And one is they crack the egg and then they drop the egg in their hand and let the whites go through their fingers. That works. It makes a mess. It's one more time you have to stop and clean up before you proceed because shit sticks to your hands. And I don't mind stuff sticking to my hands, but if I can avoid it so I don't have to take a stop in what I'm doing, I'm going to do it. You crack the egg, you pull it in half, and you kind of pour it back and forth, and you separate the, the yolk and the white, one in each egg, and you dump the white somewhere and you dump the yolk somewhere. It is so easy. I do not understand why people dump the damn thing in their hand. The other one is if you open a quail egg by tapping it on the side of a bowl, you are one of God's special children, and you need to stop it and stop it now. For about $3, you can buy a pair of quail egg scissors from Amazon or any place else, and you can cut them. There was a guy selling them in bulk on eBay, and back when we were doing quail and we were selling quail eggs to our customers, we bought them by the case. And the first time we sold people any quail eggs, we gave them a pair. Because you know what we figured out? Then they came back and bought more quail eggs. Because when they went home and tried to crack a little ass quail egg, a little bitty egg with a thick-ass shell, they would mess it up, and they didn't want them anymore. But once we gave them the scissors, they're like, oh, these things are great. Buy the damn scissors and separate your chicken and duck eggs learn how to do it don't pour them in your hand don't pour them through a sifter it takes two seconds to do it's not that hard oh one more duck egg hack before we finish up when you crack a duck egg it ain't like a chicken egg where you just hit it on the table and it cracks nice it's a much thicker shell and the best way to crack it is with a knife Crack it with the back of the knife so that the blade doesn't cut into the yolk and ruin your yolk if you want the yolks whole. If you're making scrambled eggs, it doesn't matter. Um, next, how about I talked about indirect heat when you're grilling chicken. Here's my hack for that. Wherever you're going to put the chicken down, assuming you're using a gas grill. If you're not using a gas grill, you can do the same thing anyway, just one less step in it. Take the grill rates off, and on a gas grill, you'll have those reflectors that go over your burners. Take them out. It'll make more space. Take a throwaway aluminum pan or two, depending on how much space you need, and set them down in there. Now you can put your chicken, your ribs, whatever that greasy thing that's going to render out all that fat on the grill. And instead of it going down in your grill, and next time you turn that part of the grill on having a grease fire, it all goes in the pan, and when the pan's got enough grease in it, you just throw it away. Easiest damn thing ever. Now, what I do with my grill, I have a huge Weber. It's uh, six burners. Yeah, six burners. I'll put the two or four outer burners on on either side for indirect heat and control my heat from there. I pull the center out, drop those foil pans down there, put the center back on. I do my indirect cooking there. And then that way, if I want to finish over high heat, I just move the food to do that. Now, what you can also do is you can put food like that into a pan, a throwaway pan, and set it on the grill directly. The problem is the food's sitting in the grease now. But if you put the pan underneath the grill, all that grease renders and that food gets to cook proper on a grill. That's a super, super simple, stupid simple one. But it will, it will make your life better. And, again, those pans are stupid cheap. You can throw them away. And if you have one that's got a little bit of grease in it and you don't want to clean it out to use it for something else, just put it away until the next run you do because you don't care if that grease gets rancid or anything. As long as it's not a place where it's going to stink. Um, honestly, I just leave mine in the grill 
until I have to take them out. I don't care that it's there. It doesn't matter. And if I need to cook down there, I pull them out. And if I look down there and I'm like, that's, that's time for that one to go. When they're about a third full, I pitch them. I pitch them. Right. Just so much, so much better. And hey, hey, I got your question, but really should be all caps. You got lucky on that one. Uh, last one, cold smoking. I'm going to give you, if you own the two things you need to do this, and you've never done it, and you like the idea of cold smoking, you're going to do one of the, why didn't I think of that? If you have an offset smoker and a pellet smoker tube, you have a cold smokehouse. So think of your big offset smoker. you got your firebox, and then you got your main chamber, and you put your big briskets and pork shoulders and stuff in there, and then you you start your fire over here, and you get it burning down, and you try to get your 225, 250 temperature for your smoking in that main chamber off of your firebox. Great for that. And I find myself very seldom using my sidebox smoker because I use a sidebox smoker if I'm going to make like two briskets and a pork shoulder, like five five racks of ribs or something. And 90% of the time when I cook, I'm cooking for me and Dorothy. And I don't know about you. I just don't feel like it's worth firing up a sidebox smoker to do that. So I started using smoker tubes a few years ago. And I keep thinking, I'm going to build myself a cold smokehouse. So I can do cold smoked cheese and stuff like that. And I, so one day I thought, you're stupid, Jack. Take the smoker tube and put it in your firebox on your offset smoker. Fire it up and get it going. And put the stuff you want to cold smoke in your main chamber. It's never going to get hot in there. But you know what will happen? That smoke will draw through. It has to. You can play with your vents and stuff like that. But basically, you've got a little bit of warmth. And it's going to draw through your chamber. I guess you could put a fan on the outpost, little fan if you want to. You don't need to. And now you've got a decent-sized cold smoker. Now, there's other ways to do this. I've done it on my gas grill. Just put it all the way to one side. Take a piece of aluminum foil, the part for where your rotisserie is supposed to go, whether you have one or not, on the side that smokes on it. It's going to force it to go out the other side and go across the food. But it works much better in an offset because it's designed to flow that smoke. Now, here's an idea I've had to do with this. And, and, and as you know, a biltong purist would get real pissed off with what I'm about to say. But I'm going to tell you that everything that's wonderful had to be done the first time. And so the difference between biltong and jerky is not smoke. Jerky, very much traditionally, was just salted meat dried in the sun, and biltong, and very thinly sliced, and biltong was thick meat dried in the shade in the dry season when the insects aren't much of a problem. Both use different countermeasures to deal with the potential of, like, flies laying eggs on them and then with maggots in your meat. Jerky used... Salt and very thin and very fast drying. And then you can't always have a perfect situation. So eventually people put smoke on jerky. And a lot of times it wasn't like a smokehouse. It had like a low fire near it set up so the smoke wafted across it because bugs don't like smoke. As any, bee, any beekeeper can tell you, bugs and smoke don't go together. So if you have smoke wafting over your jerky, you ain't going to have flies landing on it. What they did in South Africa is one was time of year, dry season, less flies. The other countermeasures were apple cider vinegar and black pepper. Traditional biltong is made with apple cider vinegar, black pepper, coriander, and lean meat. That's it. 
Worcestershire sauce. Okay, well, Biltong predates the existence of Worcestershire sauce by about 150 years, and that's just the Dutch newest version out of South Africa. So if you're a purist and you want to scream Worcestershire, there's an example of where something made the thing better because Worcestershire sauce is great on Biltong. Nothing wrong with it. Well, I'm thinking, what if I made a cold smoke Biltong? I know that's not real Biltong, but I don't believe that because I'm the guy that when you say, well, it's not chili if it has beans in it, I'm like, I actually don't make my chili with beans. And even when I ate carbs, I really didn't. I prefer a full meat chili. But you can't say it's not chili because it has beans in it. That's just dumb. That's Texas bullshit. I'm sorry. It is. It's chili with beans. It doesn't stop being chili because you put beans in it, right? If I put chicken and rice together, it doesn't stop being chicken or stop being rice. It's just chicken and rice. So I, I don't see why there couldn't be a cold smoke built on. And what it would end up being is a countermeasure to being bothered by insects if you wanted to do it outside and I would just say you need to do it at a time of year where the air temperature is around 80-ish degrees. You don't want to do this when it's 100 degrees out. I mean, cold smoke, you don't want the temperature of the chamber above about 80 to 85 degrees. But I'm thinking of trying that. But I think cold smoking using an offset smoker and smoker tubes, and you could just fill those tubes up. And you know, the ones I recommend, they last eight hours. So you could, you know. Go a 24-hour cold smoke just filling it up three times. Just set an alarm and remember to go out and do it. You could also use, um, they make these boxes now. They're like a maze in them, and they last even longer to use sawdust. They make a really thick smoke. And here's an application of cold smoking with cooking. And this is what I did last year. It was a pretty big hit at the workshop. You take brisket, and you cold smoke it. And you cold smoke it for about six hours. Then... You put it in a chamber vac, and you, you put a little bit, whatever rub you want, but a little bit of soy sauce on your brisket when you do this. I'm not big on soy sauce, but trust me, it works for this. You chamber vac seal, or you could vac seal, right, your brisket, and you're probably going to have to break it into smaller pieces to do this. And then you sous vide it for 48 hours. You won't have to sear it, because the cold smoke generally will give you a bark, but you might want to sear it. It'll depend. Right? You sear it with a torch or you can sear it you can put it back in the smoker let it cool put it back in the smoker and run a hot smoke for an hour to give it a bark if you want it the thing you can do with this you can't do with brisket you can cook it medium medium rare wherever you want you can cook it at 135 you can cook it at 140 140 is like if you've ever seen roast beef that's not rare like like the picky eater will still eat it even though it grosses me out a little bit because it's pink but it's just that beautiful pink 140 will give your brisket that beautiful pink. It will be as tender as velvet. And yet you've got a medium rare brisket. It is fantastic. And by the way, if you do, if you, you don't have to smoke it. If you take the point of a brisket, the fatty part that they make chopped brisket out of, and you sous vide that shit for like 24 hours just by itself at like 135, you'll think you have a Kobe steak. So there's another bonus for you. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, all the stuff we talked about is in the show notes today. I am going to go ahead and hit some questions as quick as I can here so I can wrap up. It says, Wild Blue Whip, it says, do you ever use an air fryer to cook meat? So I don't own an air fryer. My oven has an air fryer setting. I've done it a little bit. I feel like I can always get better results 
cooking on a stovetop over gas with a carbon steel pan or on my flat top or on my grill. I don't begrudge anybody doing it, but I will say if you're going to do meat in an air fryer, the dryness of the outside surface of the meat is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. So I don't do it, but it's not because I have anything against it. Uh, it just, I get better results and I'm not time crunched and, and I get why people do it. Uh, K-Bonk says frozen marinade, dry brine after. Um, in that instance, you would probably fr- freeze with a marinade and dry brine after uh, if you're freezing, like I said, in the bag. If you had the time, honestly, you'd be better off dry brining marinade in the bag, freezing, and then when you take that out, that's ready to go. Um, it's it's not quite as easy to, to delineate there because these are different techniques for different purposes. So most of the things that I would uh, do this with, I would try to dry brine in advance if I could. But it may not be the case that you have the luxury of time to do it. Um, Bill says, Jack, will this vac sealer do a whole chicken? Mine will. Mine will. The less expensive one will not. It will, it will not do a whole chicken. Um, it is, it is not just, so both of them are about the same width. I think the less expensive one's like 11 inch width and mine's a 12. That's not a huge difference, but mine is like, I believe it's 11 and a half inches of depth. So front to back and the, the, the less expensive one from Avid Armor is like seven inches. So it's a much smaller chamber. Also the height, my, the height of mine, again, you can lay quart jars down, two quart jars in it and they'll fit with the dome. It has like a, a domed roof. The Avid Armor one is a flat roof. It only has three inches of clearance. So anything thicker than you know two and three quarter inches isn't going to fit in there. So it's more for steaks, chops, pieces and parts, things like that. Any chamber vac will never vacuum seal things as large as a vac sealer does because the thing has to go in the chamber vac. So unless you're talking about commercial level shit, like there's a limitation. So on poultry, if you're doing a lot of it, <clears throat> the... Uh, they make these poultry bags. You put the thing in it and you twist tie them up and you stick them in hot water and the bag shrinks. And that's and that's probably a better way to go. But a normal like five pound frying chicken, uh, you know, five pound broiler, somewhere in that range will fit in mine. Barely because it's big this way. So it, it depends on how big the chicken is like a turkey or something like that or a whole brisket. It's not happening. When I do the brisket for the workshops, I have to break a brisket down usually into about three pieces. A really big one I might break down into four if you're going to do that type of thing with it. So unlike a vac seal bag, where as long as the bag's wide enough, they're going to be 30 foot long and only the end goes into the vac sealer. So different things, different purposes. But chamber vac bags are much cheaper than vacuum seal bags. And here's why. The vacuum seal bag has those little ridges in it, and that's so the air can get out of the bag. A chamber vac bag is smooth, so it's like making any other bag, really. And what that, that is because you evacuate the entire chamber, then you, then you seal, then you let the air back in, so it doesn't need those channels to get the air out. So, yes, a chamber vac is more expensive, but if you do a lot of sealing, if you take away how many bags fail with a regular vac sealer, because that's part of why I got rid of them, plus the, the, the reduced expense in bags, 
well, it pays for itself over time. I would also tell you, like, you'll be tempted to get the biggest bags you can as thick as possible. And for your large items that are going in the deep freezer a long time, good idea. Get a whole bunch of different size bags, three mil thick, you know, which is like you can get six mil, so about half of the thickest, super cheap. And for things like short-term freezing, just a steak, just a couple chops, et cetera, it's all you need. And they're so cheap that if you have like a chop and it's got a little bit of an edge of bone, stick it one bag in and double bag it and, and be good to go. Uh, next up, more Saturday says, do you have any hacks for elk, especially ground elk? I got one last year. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to eat it all. You treat it like ground beef. I think that we get into this role where we think that uh, buffalo or elk or deer is really that much different than meat. The only real difference as far as how you treat it is it's, it's, it's leaner in general. So one of the biggest hacks I can give you for ground elk, assuming it's straight ground elk and no fat was added to it, is go out and buy yourself like a whole tri-tip, right? Uh, or uh, like a, a whole ribeye even or whatever, or a chuck and break it down and all those trimmings of fat, chunk it up, throw it in the freezer, put it through the grinder. And in ideal situation, when you initially had the elk ground, or if you ground it yourself, you'd go ahead and mix it and look for like an 80-20 fat to, to lean ratio, just like a good hamburger. But let's say you already, like most of the time, people take their animals to processors. And elk's a big animal. It's a lot more work than processing a deer. So you just get the little, you know, one-pound tubes of beef, and they come straight out of the grinder like they're making sausage is how they do that. And they put a little hog ring on it. And that's what you've probably got a ton of frozen. Well, just take your ground fat. And you can use pork fat. You can use beef fat, whatever. But I find beef fat works really well for this. Take your ground fat and make like two-ounce little baggies or four ounces, depending on how much you, know, you want to use. But, you know, two to three ounces per package. Throw that in your freezer. When you take out a pound of elk, take out one of your fat packages. When everything defrosts, mix it together. Why did I say freeze the fat before you grind it? Well, I said that because any meat that goes into a grinder should be almost frozen before it goes into the grinder, and fat even more so. If you have your meat to where it's par frozen or even your fat to where when you pick it up, it's kind of hard, but you can just put a little dent in it with your finger, it'll go straight through that grinder and won't turn to mush. If you put room temperature or even refrigerator temperature fat into a grinder, it will ooze out as mush. So par freeze it. That would be, and then, you know, whatever you want, it makes good tacos. It, it, you just do anything you do with ground beef with it. My favorite thing in the world, though, I think, from ground elk is, is chili. So I would, I would start making some chili. K-Bonk says butterfly drum skin side first. Uh, I'm talking about when you put it down, it depends. On indirect heat, I go flesh slide down with a butterfly chicken leg. Because it's the it's the top that crisps well, and you can pretty much cook them without turning them. And the only thing I do with those, like I said, is at the end of the cook, I'll put them over the heat. If you have a basting sauce, go over the heat for a second, bring them back to the indirect, put the basting sauce on them, close it back down, and let that baste firm up before you pull them. And then if you're gonna, you know, the other thing you could do is you can baste the bottom you know, at the same time. So you can put them skin side down, base the bottom, bring them back over to the indirect base, the top and finish them. And then that way you get the base and the stickiness of the base all going at one. Uh, K-Bonk also said about 
duck eggs in Italy, so we already did that. Hey, hey, Alabama says, do some ducks have better tasting eggs than others? I've had good ones, and I've had some that taste like swamp water. My dad said it must have been a mud duck. There's no mud ducks. Um, ducks are ducks. All the ducks that we keep commercially are what we call a dabbler duck, so they're not diving ducks. Um, you've got basically mallards in the scubbies that are kept as livestock. That's it. When people talk about like a, a mud duck, what they're talking about is a diving duck, and it would be something like a coot or a cormorant. Um, I have never had a bad duck egg. I've heard this before. I do believe it's possible. I think it has a lot more to do with how the ducks are taken care of and how the eggs are handled and what the duck's diet is. So we have never had a swamp water duck egg. I've had duck eggs from my own farm. I've had duck eggs from people that own, you know, full on ponds and lakes and streams, and they've always been delicious. I don't know what makes a duck egg not taste great. My, my gut is handling after laying and harvest is probably more than anything else. But I've had plenty of our customers tell us, I tried somebody's duck eggs when I couldn't get yours and they sucked. I think that has a lot to do with the feed we give, which is we do not feed soy-based feed to our ducks. Infinity, I refuse to. It will never happen. It doesn't. They get a lot of wild forage, and they get good, clean, fresh water every day. So I've never had a bad duck egg myself, and I I think it's probably more diet and handling than anything else. But the the, the mud comments lead me kind of to the same thing about – when people say that, like, catfish eat mud, catfish don't eat mud. Catfish don't taste like mud. Now, I'll tell you when catfish don't taste great. If you harvest catfish in the heat of summer, especially from smaller bodies of water, and the water temperature is like 85 degrees, when you, when you clean that fish, you'll find that the, the, the texture of it is really, really soft. And it's not that the fish itself tastes like mud. It, it makes you think it tastes like mud because the texture is shit. Now, there's a couple ways to handle this. One, don't harvest fish at the peak of summer, catfish at the peak of summer, from small bodies of water would be one. The other way is dry brine your fish. So when I do bullhead catfish, which everybody says, that's a mud cat. It eats mud. If it ain't mud, it would be the most sustainable protein on the planet. I mean, really think about what you're saying. It lives on mud. Sure it does. Do you do you understand? Yeah, the, the, and Joe's saying throw the fish on ice first. That too. Immediately ice. For fish, you're going to keep this time of year. Um, but when I clean a bullhead cat or a small channel, I, it's called shucking, shucking bullheads, if you if you look it up on YouTube. And basically, you cut a slit in the back of the fish from the from the little tab fin down by the, the tail all the way up to the, the, the top dorsal fin, the one that will stab you in the, in the palm if you grab it wrong. You cut up to there, and it's kind of hard to explain without uh, – being able to show you, but you take the tip of your knife and you don't want to cut into either side of the skin. You break the backbone with the knife and then you break the fish. Like you take the head and the body and you just in your hand, like you're breaking a stick and you reach in. It's much easier with a pair of just cheap pliers to do this in your fingers. Cause you're doing a bunch of your fingers and start to get cut open. And I don't want catfish blood in my, in my blood. So you take the pliers and you grab, you hold the head in one hand and the, the, the spine in the other and you pull and you end up with a, a skinless, bone-in, uh, beautiful, gut, gutted little fish body on one side and the head and the guts on the other. And you throw the head and the guts away, 
And then the only thing left inside that fish will be a bloodline. And you just take the back of your thumbnail and rub that out and clean out that fish. If you, if you're doing that, and this, this is good always salt both sides of that before you cook it. They're delicious, even though they're a mud cat, right? Um, and another great hack with that is take your knife and put three or four slices just barely into the flesh on each side of that fish. And catfish have a lot of fat, so a lot of that fat will render out crispy without even breading it. But if you do that hack with the slits and then salt it, that fish will firm up. I know that doesn't relate to the duck question, but it's just and, – and Joe says bullheads are candy for flathead cats. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. And if you ever fishing for bullheads and you're fishing with like an ultralight rod and you get a nice bullhead and all of a sudden wango a flathead or even a big channel grabs it, you're in for a ride. I caught a, it's like a six and a quarter pound channel cat at a little farm pond a couple of years ago. I put, there's a video I have on my YouTube channel. And when I gutted it, it had a bullhead, about a four inch bullhead in its stomach. And I was catching bullheads and I'm pretty sure, and I was using salted shrimp for bait. I'm pretty sure what happened is I had those rods out and that little bullhead hooked himself and he was on there and the channel cat ate them. I'm pretty sure that's what happened, but I've had things like that happen. I also had a few years ago, I was fishing with a buddy and my grandson with a guide named Omar Cotter, luck of the Irish. If you're anywhere in the Dallas Fort Worth area and you want an incredible trip for white bass and stripers, you should totally look them up again. It's called Omar Cotter, luck. Oh, the Irish fishing guide service. Well, we had a white bass on and all of a sudden it's just like, boom. And it feels like you're snagged and we're working it and working it and working it. If I was like, it's moving and I get a head shake and I start trying to work this and I start actually getting this thing up and nobody believes me that it's a fish uh, until I get it up enough that it gets pissed off and it just made like three runs and snapped off. And the based on where we were fishing, you know, it's not a shark or a grouper or something when you're in fresh water. It, it must have been a channel cat. I mean, a flathead cat. And it had to be a big one. I mean, it had to be a good like. Uh, 50 pound fish. Uh, that's, that's a fun thing. I need to wrap up guys, but there is some cool shit that happens fishing. We need to talk about fishing again. One year I was fishing in, uh, Sanibel Island, Florida, just surf fishing. And I hooked a little, little amberjack, probably about nine or 10 inch amberjack. And all of a sudden, I, I think I'm going to lose it because I've got, I don't have a steel leader or anything. And the drag just screams off, off the reel. And I'm, it's a, I'm thinking it's a shark. It's gone. And all of a sudden, this fish comes up out of the water. And I had a guy standing next to me watching me fish. He started laughing. I'm like, oh, hell, F, yeah, right? You're like, I'm excited. I got this giant snook comes up out of the water. And I'm like, I got him hooked. And I'm thinking I might be, even as a light rod, I might be able to land this fish. He came up out of the water again. He spit that jack out like a, like a bad meal, which I guess it was. I reeled the jack in. and He's still alive. He had been all, he had like scrape marks. He had been all the way down in the stomach and come back up through the rough um, throat of that snook when that snook basically regurgitated him. And I would have never hooked the snook because the hook was in the, like deep in, in like the, the skull of the jack where the tip of the hook had never come out. So when he threw him back up, there was no hook and he just spit him out. And I let that little jack go. He had a story to tell, didn't he? That's a hell of a story. That's a great fish story for a fish. I, there I was, minding my own business. I saw this piece of shrimp, and I ate it. 
And something bit me in the face and started And then giant fish came and ate me. Nobody would believe it in the fish world. If you don't believe me, I don't tell fish stories that aren't true. Don't need to. Anyway, guys, I do need to wrap up today. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope it got you thinking a whole new way. And again, I mean, look what we covered today. This is stuff that, like, if you dig around long enough, you'll find it all here and there. But I try to bring stuff like this together for you because think of what you can do now with stuff that's already in your home and a few extra ingredients. And again, if you need some of the stuff, I have links in the show notes today for everything. I don't have an item of the day today because there's a ton of them in the show notes. I have a link to the document with the four recipes for you as well. That's all free. Uh, just go check it out. And uh, this is probably be one some of y'all want to listen to more than once because I want to tell you real quick as we, as we finish a story of how I learned stuff like this. So there's some I don't have in today's episode that I kind of feel like will be in the next episode like this whenever I get to it. Mushroom ketchup. When somebody says ketchup to me, I like blah. I don't need sugar, sugared up tomato paste. I don't with, with corn syrup in it. But that's not what ketchup was. Ketchup, go back 150 years and from there back, ketchup looks nothing like today's ketchup. And, and the primary ketchup was made with, with mushrooms. And it's a thin sauce. It's more like like you would think of like using like a soy or a Worcestershire, but it tastes totally different. And this is not really about mushroom ketchup. I learned about it on J.A. Townsend and Sons YouTube. And I love Townsend's YouTube. This is the dude. He dresses in the period stuff. J.A. Townsend sells all this stuff from the 18th and 17th century and all. And he cooks the food the way it was with recipes from like Hannah Glass's cookbook and stuff like that. And he made mushroom ketchup. And I'm like, I should make mushroom ketchup. That sounds cool. It's one I ain't done yet. And as he was explaining his recipe, he's talking about the different spices and herbs he put into it. Well, he goes, so I'm going to add a little bit of long pepper. Well, my ears go, what is long? He didn't even say what it was. And I'm like, I'm going to find out what long peppers. Well, it turns out long pepper was actually what people used the way that we use black pepper today way, way, way longer, hundreds of years ago. It was the black pepper. And it's got little tiny peppercorns. These are much smaller than a black peppercorn, and they grow on like a, it almost looks like a, a long, skinny mulberry or blackberry. And it's expensive to produce, so when they started to find that it was easier to produce the black pepper that you're familiar with. One kind of went out and the other one came in. So I'm like, I'm going to order some of this. So I go on Amazon, find a brand that looks good, order this stuff, gets here way hotter than black pepper. The heat is more like a chili pepper, but it's not as persistent. It goes away faster, not as fast as like a horseradish does where it's like boom and gone, but it doesn't, you know, it's not like 15 minutes later, you're going, why did I do that? Um, but it has a almost a cinnamon nutmeg other herbaceous spice thing going on in addition to that pugnancy of black pepper. I don't know all the things I'm going to do with it yet. I just know that I'm going to use it. And I'm going to use it because of one sentence that that guy said and didn't say any. And I can't even find anything else about it on his channel. But... Once I was exposed to that idea that here's a new thing. Well, let's get a little bit of it. Let's spend five bucks to buy a little bag of it. Let's taste it and figure out what we can do with it. Well, now that gets added to everything else. Take the stuff I gave you today and do that with it. With that, I'll wrap up. 
I'll be back tomorrow. Again, we're not doing an expert counsel show tomorrow. There will be a live stream tomorrow. I don't know what it's going to be yet. i got to figure it out. Uh, it's a weird week. And uh, then we'll have a great weekend. We'll come back and do it all again. One little thing here at the end. I'm supposed to say it's the beginning. Damn it. I have one ticket left to the 20-year anniversary party, which is like two weeks away now. It's July 20th. It's Thursday. Um, almost every order that came in after the initial surge was couples. I do have one left. We're not that tight on attendance. If somebody wants to buy that ticket and you like want to come as a couple, just buy the one. If you buy the one, I'll sell you another one for the other. I'll just add one in inventory and we'll take care of it. Uh, so if you want to come to 20 year anniversary party, still one ticket. It could be two. Now, if you just want one, just buy one. Uh, but it feels kind of stupid to have one ticket left. Anyway, uh, there's a link in today's show notes for that as well. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you to. Make your own way, others will follow. Revolution is you.